So for most of us, I imagine, the problems of banquet seating don't make our top 10 list of things to worry about often, if you're at all like me. So I wanted to take a moment to set the scene for this passage with a quote from Pliny the Younger, a lawyer and ancient Roman magistrate. Writing about a dinner party he attended, we read some very elegant dishes were served up to the host and a few more of the company, while those which were placed before the rest were cheap and poultry. He apportioned in small flagons three different sorts of wine, but you are not to suppose it was that the guests might take their choice. On the contrary, that they might not choose at all. One was for himself and me, the next for his friends of lower order, for you must know that he measures out his friendship according to the degrees of quality, and the third for his own free men and mine. In other words, a shared meal rather than an opportunity for unity and wholeness across social stratospheres was an opportunity to physically reinforce the status quo of social structures, underscoring concretely the haves and the have-nots. This practice apparently is what inspires Jesus' words in this morning's passage. He speaks first to his fellow dinner guests, drawing attention to behavior that leads to disgrace and contrasting it with behavior that leads to honor, which in the Greek is the same word for glory, doxa, like doxology. On the one hand, the assumption of status, supported by a blind eye to the needs and experiences of others, manifests in the guests by grabbing for what is considered the place of honor, the better food, the better wine, and more importantly, the better connections, I'm sure. But Jesus says this behavior leaves one vulnerable to disgrace. Give up your seat to that person. On the other hand, Jesus proposes that assuming a position of humility, not taking as a given the status of one person over another or one place over another, opens the guest up to the possibility of honor. Friend, move up. Now it is my fervent prayer that most of us don't have a whole lot of experience either with this kind of blatant classism at the dinner tables that we are invited to. We expect to be served the same food and the same wine. Everyone else is being served. But as I sat with this passage, what kept coming to me was what African-American parents call the talk. It's not the talk that I had with my children as their bodies began to develop. 
It's the talk that African-American parents have with, in particular, their sons, not solely, but to prepare them to interact with people of authority and, more specifically, with law enforcement. From what I have heard and overheard, it goes something like this. Don't ever backtalk. Don't get cocky with someone in authority. The conversation might not end with you alive. Be aware that you are a target, and don't ever forget it. What brought all this to my mind was an airing I had recently heard with the professor of communications at Clemson University, Chenjerai Kumanika. He was interviewing the mother of a high school-aged black African-American young man on Invisibilia, one of the NPR podcast series. This particular episode is called The Secret Emotional Life of Clothes. Professor Kumanika was by his own admission angry with the strictness of the woman's dress code for her son. His pants could not be sagged at all or ever. Collared shirts were to be worn to school, not t-shirts. And then the interview focused in, it zeroed on this one piece of clothing that the professor found in the boy's closet. It was a canary yellow sweatshirt with a hood. In Professor Kumanika's eyes, that this was restricted in public was ridiculous. It was a canary yellow, a canary yellow sweatshirt. What was the problem? As I listened to the, heart, the, the podcast, my heart broke again, as it has so many times, for the parents that have had to have the talk with their boys or maybe girls. My heart broke for the parents that hold their breath as they turn the radio on in the morning to learn of the loss of yet another young man, one that is no different than the one sitting across from them at breakfast. My heart broke for the desperation of this woman trying to keep her son alive through the restrictions on what he could and couldn't wear, the only power she felt she had. My heart broke as I remembered my son with his platinum blonde, and I do mean platinum blonde hair, and eyes as blue as the Hawaiian ocean. Like the young man on the interview, at 15 or 16, he wore a canary yellow sweatshirt with a hood. He called it his happy sweatshirt because it was so bright that he said that if he were to wear it and was in a bad mood, it would just tick him off. <laughs> Never once did his father or I speak with him about where or when he could wear the happy sweatshirt. Never once did we even think about him putting his hood up or his hood down. 
we didn't have to. You see, my friends, I am by no nothing I have done other than the color of my skin, and we are by no fault of our own other than our citizenship in this country. The guests seated close to the host of this particular dinner party. Which brings us to the second part of Jesus' address and his words for his host, poignant words as we hear the cries for walls to be built to protect us from the threats from without and extreme vetting to protect us from the threats from within. Invite them, Jesus says. That's it. Now, I have always been accused of being anywhere from optimistic to naive. As a child, my father would roll his eyes as I dreamed of a better world, even though by today's standard, that world seems so innocent now. As an adult, my poor, long-suffering, economically-focused husband, whose brain simply sees the world through spreadsheet-shaped lenses, <laughs> silently sets his jaw so as not to start the conservative, progressive war within our peaceful, happy home. <laughs> I appreciate that. I accept that I am optimistic, and God knows that I am naive to the unspeakable cruelty that one human being is capable of doing to another. So I sat with Jesus' invitation, and I wondered what that would mean in the face of walls and vetting and terror attacks and heartache and too much loss. And I began to remember a different podcast, this one called Flip the Script. The narrator describes a small town in Denmark, perfect in its tidiness. For all its perfection, however, the town was losing a significant number of its children as they slipped out of their homes and out of their country to join ISIS. In fact, the town reached second in the world for homegrown terrorists. The town's police, Alan Oslo and Torleif Klink, were as baffled as they were powerless to do anything as these panicked parents called for help. The models already established were David Cameron's proclamation that UK citizens found to be helping ISIS were enemies of the state and would be treated as such. In France, the policy was to revoke the passport of anyone suspected of collaboration, making travel impossible. But in this town, these two police officers 
wedged between parents' love and the nation's fear, decided to do something different. Alan Oslo and Torlife Klink put into place a program of help to support these kids, everything from medical help for a child returning with a gunshot wound, to support in finding a job, to pools of mentors to help these kids integrate into a society that some of them had never felt a part of despite the years that they had lived there were offered freely. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. There is something about being optimistic and naive that is so humbling. And I guess I will have to admit that both are true of me. I've always had a little shame around this because I leave myself wide open to the possibility of disgrace if I misjudge a situation and danger in that misjudgment. But the canary yellow clothing of optimism doesn't allow for extreme vetting of those invited to the table. It's incongruent with entertaining angels. Naivete doesn't allow for walls to be built. And so it does, it truly does, leave us vulnerable to the very real dangers from the inside and from the outside. I admit further that if it were my family grieving, if it were my kids living in Paris, Nice, Turkey, San Bernardino, Ferguson, Milwaukee, New York, Chicago, walls might look pretty good. And vetting essential. But what I know is true is that love in any form, in any form, exacts a terrible price. There's no way around it. We must decide, my friends, if we are willing to pay that price and as Paul writes, let mutual love continue. May our seats at the table always reflect the glory of God. Amen.